So I was born in San Francisco, but I lived in San Francisco for the first seven years of my life, and then I lived uh, my the rest of the time through my adolescence in Daly City. Okay. And so I went to went to school, went completed, went, you know, completed up to second grade in San Francisco, and then went from third to third grade to senior year in high school in Daly City. Wow. What was your what was your life like back then? Like, what were your parents like? What was kind of the environment around you like? Did you have any siblings? Yes, I grew up in a family, uh, you know, both parents, and then I'm the oldest of four kids, so I, so I played with my brothers mostly. My sister came in when I was about 10 years old, and, um, you know, had a, had a lot of neighborhood friends, played sports with them, and and so up through middle school, you know, it was, it was pretty... Um, pretty simple life. Uh, parents, you know, father was a work, working class guy, machinist. Mother was a housewife, and uh, we lived in a we lived in a, a small neighborhood that um, was pretty protective, isolated from the rest of the you know from San Francisco and um, from the you know it was just a small, isolated little neighborhood that all the kids grew up together. Where was that? What neighborhood was it? Right in the Bayshore part of Daly City, but like uh, east of the Cow Palace. East of the Cow Palace. You say, I think, like you've told me it was like Sherwin Street, so... Yeah, Sherwin up above um, Geneva, and we were right on the side of uh, San Bruno Mountain, so we would go, like I enjoyed hiking up there, like... So we had a lot of, you know, we, we were able to, we were, we were kind of free range kids. We were able to get around, you know, walk around and then eventually get bikes and ride our bikes around. That's pretty cool. So your parents let you go out and kind of do what you did, needed to do and have fun as long as you just told them where you were going or what was that like? Yeah, there was, this was before cell phones and all that. So we could just, kids were back then were more free range. Okay, so talk to me a little bit. I wanted to talk to you today a little bit more about, you know, your um, the wilderness therapy or adventure-based therapy and also how you got into the field of psychology and also how you decided to go back and get your master's at a later age in life when that can be challenging when you have a family or when you, you know, have... Um, just the responsibilities, simple responsibilities like bills and stuff to pay. So let's okay. start with your experience in at was it Jefferson where you got introduced into the SEEK program? And can you tell us a little bit about what the SEEK program is, that acronym and whatnot? Sure. Here's what happened. So my junior year, I was 16 years old and I signed up for what is called the SEEK program, Community Environmental Education Program, which is also called the Wilderness School. And I actually joined it at Saramani High School, but at the time, the two teachers, Abe and Reno, Abe was the Saramani teacher, Reno was the Jefferson teacher. They worked together, the classes intermingled, so we could do things at both schools. And and so we would do work projects. We would, most of it was, it's all action-oriented, very little classroom activity. It was all action-oriented, either doing a trip, of some type or service project. 
So it sounds like a pretty kinesthetic learning style about just learning by doing and being out in the environment. Can you tell me a little bit about like, how did you, how did they make it academic? Like what were you doing out in the field or out in the, out in nature to like get course credit or like to, so it was like you could fulfill your learning for the day. And can you tell me a story about, you know, a place that you went to that you really like that had a profound impact on you? You got it. Okay. So the teachers were, the teachers had these uh, credentials where they could grade in anything from anything except uh, lab science or foreign language. So everything else was on the table, English, math, physical education, social science, all that stuff was on the table. So we were able to um, fulfill our academic requirements by you know, doing a doing a project that we researched. So I'll get into that a little bit. But, but to answer the question about like what really got me, mm. um, so the semester each I did four I did four semesters with uh, with that school, and then a lot of volunteering after that. So the first thing that happened the, the beginning of the semester, you do a backpack trip. So in the fall semester of 1975, I did it, my first two-week backpack trip in the Sierras. And um, that got me. I mean, like from, from day one, I mean, I was challenged physically. I mean, carrying a heavy pack and camping in, that, in those conditions, getting up into the high mountains uh, was, a, was a big challenge and um, changed my life. I, I thought, this is, I want to do this for the rest of my life. And then you come back from this trip and you've got, you've got phases of during the semester. So part of the semester, we worked on a farm. We had an acre of, we had an acre, one acre farm in Colma, uh, just, you know, about a mile away from the class. So, you know, you work the farm by, you know, planting and weeding and taking care of the animals there. We had beehives, we had goats and uh, sheep we had uh, chickens and peacocks all kind I mean it was an amazing place and every Friday so every Monday we would have like a like the whole class would meet and so we had 30 students and we would meet every Monday and, and get caught up and that was the only time the whole class would see each other because everybody was in different phases and so in the farm on Fridays, we'd have a big potluck lunch. And so, I mean, so it was, that was just a very fun time. Um, I remember that one of my uh, independent projects was to research nuclear power and to, and to um, have a discussion on, you know, like if, you know, with, you know, what did the community want with nuclear power? Were they for it or against it? And so, I this is before the this is before um, internet. So I went and gathered all kinds of materials pertaining to nuclear power, and we we put on a presentation, um, you know, with Friends of the Earth representatives against nuclear power, and PG&E representatives uh, represented for nuclear power. So those are, that was my independent project, and that was my farm project. And then community service, what we would do is we would do, um, like, uh, we did a trash-a-thon where we walked 10 miles, picked up garbage, and raised money for the school. 
We'd also do um, weed abatement where we go to a vacant lot and clean it up, get money from the city. Uh, we also um, did a lot of trail work. We did trail work in Mendocino, which turned out to be a beautiful place, that place that um, I brought you one time, a few times. And uh, so all over that Northern California area, we would go to we would go to Point Reyes, Bolinas, Los. We went all over California. It was so in those two years, um, we covered a lot of territory. We backpacked in the Sierras, Death Valley, Los Padres. I mean, got a lot of a uh, lot of experience uh, working outside and working with a lot of different people. At that time, uh, the other teacher at Jefferson. Um, he was able to get set up to where he he was able to uh, get some land, access to land down in La Honda at this uh, at this YMCA camp, and we started working on building a ropes course, which turned out to be the first ropes course in Northern California, and it was fairly large. I mean, we it was spread out. This area was a large. We had access to this large area of woodland. And we built an extensive ropes course with at least uh, four or five sections in it. And um, it ser- initially, it's, it served as our playground. I mean, we, we worked on it for a few months, going down there two days a week and constructing, constructing the ropes course. And then we started to, uh, our first workshop there was, we had a weekend workshop with uh, teachers from all over the Bay Area. And for a few years, they would bring their kit, their students there, and we'd run the st- students through the ropes course. So the the innovation was the students, the wilderness school students, built the ropes course, and they trained as trained to instruct at that ropes course. This was the innovation of the wilderness school, and uh, uh, we we graduated from running uh, school groups through to running college students to. Um, running corporation, corporate clients through it. So we started making money uh, within about three years of uh, fr- after the start of the ropes course. So I worked there for from 1977 to 1984. What years did you work there in high school? Because you, where you, you helped build it, right? Yeah, so it was my, it was 1977 was my senior year in high school. And that was the project that I, I focused on and then spent the rest of spent like and then after graduation from high school I I volu- I volunteered up until about nineteen eighty and then we started getting paid. And then we would start getting paid like twenty five dollars a course, then we get paid a hundred dollars a course, then we get paid five hundred dollars a course. And that's over a period of how long where you're getting those um, incremental raises? About eight years. From almost so seventy seven to eighty eight, so eleven years. So it's grown. It's starting to grow. Yeah, that's cool. And then what? So you graduate. You work. You volunteer on the the ropes course. Where do you go from there? Okay, so then, uh, nineteen eighty two, I moved to San Francisco, and just got a job in San Francisco. Got a day job in San Francisco. Worked ropes courses on the weekends. And um, so I live, I live right next to Golden Gate Park. I live on Fifth and Kirkham. And so this is what I thought I would do for the rest of my life. I would just jog in Golden Gate Park every day, do my day job, 
work the ropes courses. I was perfectly happy. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And then I did, um, and I rode my bike everywhere too. And then I did, then I met uh, mom in 1983 and July of 83. And so during that time, let's see, up until that time, I was also, let's see, I still did a lot of trips. I did some trips up until about October, and then I moved in with mom in October of 83. And so I moved to uh, Arguello between Carl and Lincoln. So we were right next to uh, Kizar Stadium. Wow. Can you talk a little bit about how, because I know you and mom lived in San Francisco, and then I guess you guys decided to have kids and get, and you decided to get married, right? And then have kids. Right. And then she's like, you need to go to college, right? Or what right. point was she like, you need to go to college? Because you haven't gone to college yet. Right. So, okay, so at 84, okay, so we moved, I moved in to the with her, October of 84, and then by August, I mean, uh, um, October of 83, and then by August of 84, she wanted to move to New Hampshire, and we got a drive-away car, drove to, drove to New Hampshire, and set up, uh, uh, set up uh, over there, and so we lived in Concord, New Hampshire, for a few months. I worked at a restaurant, and so did Sue Ellen. And then I got a job at, I got a job that lasted the next three years from 80, 85 to 88. I worked at um, Spalding Youth Center where I essentially recreated the wilderness school. So you implemented a ropes course at the Spalding Youth Center and what yeah. else? you built it. How long did that take to build and um, develop that ropes course there? So the ropes course got built pretty quick. Um, and then we developed it over three years, and it's still going. If you went to the Spalding Youth Center website, you'd see that they have a fairly, fairly well developed outdoor program now. And why, why ropes course specifically? Why does is that? In, um... Good question. So the ropes course is a is a way to expose people to an outward bound experience in a very short period of time it, it has a it has a significant impact on people in a short period of time so outward bound is basically the the model that began everything it started after world war ii it it became a 30 a 20 a, essentially a 30-day course where you're out in the wilderness learning to survive doing you know anything from dog sledding in the winter to kayaking in the summer and then backpacking and rock climbing. So outward bound is that, so it's, so it's a long expedition type of experience. And so what the goal of the ropes course was is to, is to expose people in, in one day to give them a, a taste of that experience. So to, to supplement, uh, mom had suggested, mom had suggested that I take a few college classes. And uh, so I was, we lived near Plymouth State College. And so I worked full time at Spalding Youth Center from 1985 to 88. And I was able to get my bachelor's degree in psychology um, 
by 19, let's see, I was, I was in my last semester in 1987. So by 1988, I graduated with a BA in psychology, summa cum laude. I had a 3.87 grade point average. But at, during that time, during those three years in university I was I, or college, I was combining my experience working the ropes course at Spalding and researching it. Research, like I went in the library. This is before internet. So I'm just in the library reading everything I can on outward bound and ropes courses and the psychology behind it. Mm. And I had a as a final project as a senior in college i did a behavioral research study where i where i wanted to see if a ropes course intervention you know i did like i took a baseline on behavioral data i gathered behavioral data on the kids i worked with and and then i did the ropes course intervention and then i looked at after i looked at behavioral data after the ropes course to see if there was any difference and statistically speaking, there wasn't any difference. I couldn't met. I didn't get any measurable results. But at least that was that was my first research study in the in that area. So, but okay, we need to go back to where, how you decided to go to college. But I want to ask you about this research question. Um, did you didn't see any quantitative differences, but qualitative, you could observe and see that it was having an impact. I imagine. Right. It, you know, like so. You know the qualitative uh, experiences that you you're able to build rapport. You get the kids engaged in the activities, and you you're having more cooperation and less um, less conflict with the kids. The kids I was working with were um, you know had had a lot of behavioral problems and could not function in their family home or in public school. Good. Before we continue on with that, what what made you go? How do you go from working at Spalding after kind of? So you were working in New Hampshire at a few restaurants here and there, or you worked at one restaurant for a time, and then you decided to work at Spalding. What from Spalding? How did you go? Oh, it's time to go to college. And then, how old were you when you decided to do this? Okay, so I'm twenty. I'm turning 25 in New Hampshire, my first summer in New Hampshire, and I have to get a job. So I got a job at this restaurant in Concord. Uh, we were living, we first lived with um, Jan, your, your grandparents for a month or two, and then we, we found a place to live in Concord. We found our own place in Concord. So we lived in Concord for a few months where I worked at this restaurant. I was a, a prep cook, and then I also cooked on the line. So I worked in the more I worked at that restaurant in the morning and at night. So I, I I prepped the I went there in the morning. I unloaded the trucks, put loaded up the refrigerators, prepared the uh, prepared salads and and other things for the uh, for lunch and dinner that day. And then at night I would I worked uh, cooking uh, cooking the dinner. And then you go work at Spalding and work with youth. Yeah, so I found there was an opening at Spalding, applied for it, and was uh, and got hired at Spalding, working as a uh, working as a residential counselor at a you know at a home for uh, emotionally disturbed uh, boys, 
ages um, 8 to 16. And you could be a counselor without any sort of college credit or any sort yeah, of... Yeah, we're basically, yeah, we're basically just, you know, so this is the, this is the kind of career path in mental health where, you know, th- these types of jobs don't really pay a lot, but you get a lot of um, experience. Like you get a lot of clinical experiences, your day-to-day work with kids that are, you know, they have severe behavioral problems. I mean, some of these kids would get pissed off and break the windows and you'd have to do timeouts. We did a lot of, we did a lot of intervent behavioral interventions. We did timeout. We did, you know, uh, token economy, all that stuff. It was, a, it was, um, it was based on actually the, one of the people that ran that ran the school was a, a graduate student of BF Skinner. Who's a, who was the, grandfather of behavioral psychology and can you tell me sorry this is like going off on a tangent but we're, we're trying to get okay but but one sec but can you tell me the one thing like that he was famous for bs yes so he he was famous for um proving that positive reinforcement focusing on the the uh, frequency of the behavior, you know, if you want to increase the frequency of the, of a particular behavior, you can influence that by providing positive reinforcement. Yeah. And then, okay. So you're at Spalding and you worked there for three years. You said, um, how did you decide or what influenced you to, to start college and how old were you? Okay, so I'm 25 years old. My, my wife uh, suggested that I start uh, taking college classes, and there's a there was a college just up the road from us, Plymouth State College, and so I signed up. And before I knew it, I, like I was able to matriculate to uh, in the psychology program, undergraduate psychology program. And so I, I saw, so I just took, I just followed the, you know, the, the curriculum and to pursue a degree in psychology. And then how, how long, what was your experience? Did you have any, um, you have any professors that had an impact on you or what made you decide to commit to psychology as a career? Did you have that experience then or were you kind of just following what you liked at the time? Also, you know, the, the experience work in the ropes course from 1970, like my whole wilderness school experience from 1975 to 84 at that point, uh, you know, really helped me, you know, really helped me, uh, develop a good work ethic. So I was able to work full time and attend school full time, uh, with some difficulty. I mean, but I was able to do it. I, I sustained that effort for three years solid. I mean, it wasn't easy on it wasn't easy on Sue Ellen. It wasn't easy on Sydney because I didn't get a lot of sleep. But I, I was able to, um, you know, combine those efforts, and and so then I, I just stayed focused on how does psych what's the psychological underpinnings of this outward bound experience. That's basically what I focused on that whole three years. Basically, trying to figure out like what what is the overall impact of outward bound? Is it, is it measurable? Is it significant? Right. Or is it not? 
That's right. There's one, there's one uh, definitive study in all the literature that, um, that had significant statistical results. It was a study of medical, middle school students going through a ropes course, and they, they used the Tennessee self-concept scale. And so the way these kids thought about themselves was significantly changed after they did the ropes course. Self-esteem. Their self-esteem, yeah, was impacted positively. Meaning that, you know, they they were aware that, you know, they could, they, they were aware of their potential. They were aware that, hey, wait a minute, I could do things. I can do, I can take a risk and this may, this may pay off. You know, I could benefit from doing, doing something that appears risky. And then can you talk a little bit about graduation, how that felt, and then your decision to kind of stay in New Hampshire and, and pursue a a master's degree? Uh, Yeah. So, so the graduation was, um, I was in the top 10 of my class. And so, you know, Sue Ellen and her family was proud of that. My brother came out, my brother and his family came out for the graduation ceremony. So, you know, they were proud. I was proud. But then the reality is if you're working in psychology, I mean, that's the, I mean, that's just a basic requirement. So I I treated that BA like it was a PhD. I worked really hard on it. But the reality was, is that was that that's just the you know basic requirement for work in psychology so the the next step would be to get a master's or phd and then you decide to get that that master's but how do you take that step how did you know that you would be able to commit to that how did you know that you were going to be able to even handle the coursework or afford it well i knew i could i knew i could uh, handle it because i was you know i had good work work ethic um, the, the challenge of graduate school is getting in. So like say at Uni- University of New Hampshire where I got in, there was only six spots open. You know, so I applied to, I also looked at, uh, Univ- I also looked at Dartmouth, which was actually one of the professors there. I was really excited to work with him because he, he actually studied people who were rock climbing. Wow. And, uh, I guess just to come back to, there was that one professor, I had a one mentor at, at Plymouth who supported me as I did that one uh, research study at Spalding. So he taught me research methods, statistics, and we had to do the statistics, you know, by calculator, you know, this is before you had computer access. And so, you know, I learned a lot from him. He really supported my efforts. You know, he knew, you know, he knew I was just beginning. I wasn't going to get anything significant, but he, he knew that the, you know, thinking that way, like using some critical thinking as to why I'm doing what I'm doing and to really observe the results to see, okay, well, what's my purpose for this activity? And, you know, am I, am I hitting the target, mm-hmm. so to speak? So what, do you mean by a good target? what target? So the target, like at Spalding, was to oh, see, yeah. was to really get these kids to be able to function in public, yeah. to go back to their family home and get you know to rejoin regular life, and yeah. so that's the challenge, and that's that's what we were trying to do. I was trying to make these kids leaders, and they actually 
we got these kids to, you know, guide guide other students from uh, two sep two uh, two other schools to actually attend our ropes course. We got uh, Tilton Academy and also um, another private school to attend our ropes course, and the kids help guide them through. Okay, so going back because we keep jumping a little bit. It's okay. okay. All right. What? So you, let's say you graduate your master's degree program, then what happens? Where do you okay. um, All right, this is where, so it's 1992, and I graduate from, what's my master's degree in counseling. I had get an MED, so because the counseling uh, school was in the Department of Education. Mm -hmm. So, so in 1989, I started my internship at a community mental health center in Dover, New Hampshire. We had moved to Dover in 1988 to begin studies at, uh, at University of New Hampshire. So we moved from Tilton to Dover in 1988. And this is a little bit before you were born. Sydney's, uh, Sydney's maybe one year old by this time. And then, and then in 1992, you're born. We bought that house on um, on Pine Street, South Pine Street. And and then right, just very close to that, to our house, I worked at um, Stratford Guidance Center, and I worked with adults. Uh, mentally ill patients, as well as do, did um, I did emergency room assessments and referrals. Um, uh, like I would work there at night. I would work there from like 5 p.m. to 9 a.m. So you did graveyard shifts. Yeah. I So I worked during the day. I had a caseload. Of, I, was a ca I was a clinical case manager for up to 50 clients. Uh, one of my clients actually shot herself in the stomach and survived, not to kill herself, but to uh, get whatever she thought was inside of her. Jeez. And, and uh, so I so I got a real I got a really uh, fast exposure to severe mental illness, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, things like that. And I got an I got an uh, education on what type of medicines are used in that treatment, and then um, in emergency room assessments, you know, I would I would I had from time to time had to refer people to the state hospital. So you know, in the event that somebody was a danger to themselves or others, uh, we would have to refer people to a hospital against their will, and then. The next business day, this is usually on a Friday night, so by the next Monday, I'd have to go to the hospital where there was a courtroom and have to present uh, probable cause for why I, why I referred people to the state hospital. So I learned to do that. I did that for from 89 to 95. That's just insane. That's tough. That doesn't, that sounds like very difficult work today it was hard uh working all night long like i would 
I would come home at nine in the morning. So I worked from 5 p.m. to 9 a.m. on Friday nights. Mm. And then I would come home and you guys would be, where are we going? What are we doing? I was really tired. Yeah, obviously you've been up all night. Why didn't you ever tell us that you've been up all night and you have to rest? You, know? you guys didn't understand. You're like, what you're like one two years old you're just running around the house you didn't know you didn't know what that meant you didn't care <laughs> man it's hard to even process for me to under, i would never have done that ever in my life um because it's just so difficult because one you're working with people who yeah they might harm themselves so it's just it's a lot of um it's just really sad. It sounds kind of sad and tragic. I wouldn't be able to do that. So good. It's kind of interesting that you um, are able to kind of cope in those environments. I wouldn't be able to cope in that environment. It's too stressful for me. I'm just not. Yeah, yeah I think my secret for coping with that was, okay, yeah, so I would confront situations that were, you know, that were really difficult to witness, but like say for example, even the extreme situation in involuntary admission, I would see that person, you know, the next Monday, and they most of the time they'd be grateful that I referred them to the hospital. Oh wow! Most of the time, most of the time. like they'd be pissed off at me on Friday night. You know, they didn't want to go, but then by Monday they'd go, okay, yeah, I'm in my right mind. Thank you. And then working with the, I worked with some people. You know, during the day, I worked with some people for a number of years, and I would see them recover. I like, you know, there was actually people that I see made significant progress. Oh wow! And um, so I learned to appreciate the just a human being's ability to, um, you know, to heal and recover. You know, as a function of a supportive relationship. So. Mm. That's a big lesson. Yeah. That's so a I learned about human Yeah, so I learned about human resilience on that job. Let's talk about, um, so then we drive, like when, when I turn four-ish and Sydney's eight, we drive across the country and then we go to San Francisco. San, yeah, so before that, though, what's oh, important is, like, so I quit the um, – I quit the Strafford job and mom wanted to move to Newburyport. So we moved to Newburyport we, and, and we rented our house in Dover out. And I was able to get a job um, working with kids again. And I and we operated a ropes course at, at Glo- in Gloucester, which was a nice job. It was with health and education services. So I worked with kids, elementary school and high school students. And I just ran an I ran an outdoor program there. I did initiatives and ropes courses with them, and I did that for a couple of years before we moved to San Francisco in '97. And so, so that was pretty much the last time I did a did a ropes course. I worked a ropes course full t- as a full time job it was in 1997. Um, during that time too, Silas, I tried to apply to medical school um, because working in the emergency room for those years, I mean, I worked with a lot of doctors and I got their letters of recommendation. You know, I believed I could do it, mm. but, um, you know, I took the, I, so I took the pre-med classes 
and um, applied to schools but didn't get in. So then I, then that's when mom and I decided to move back to San Francisco. What schools did you apply to? Applied to Harvard, uh, UCSF, and um, Johns Hopkins. Okay, so those are not, those are like some of the best college. That's no shame in that. That's amazing. It's the top three schools in the United States. And um, wow. Harvard, Harvard offered to read my application for an extra $100, which I paid. And before they threw it, before they threw it in the garbage, I took that money. Oh goodness! It's okay. <laughs> hey, at least you tried. I don't feel like that would like if you would have gotten a medical degree. What you? How would that that helped you? Well, I would have gotten. A, I would have gotten into psychiatry. Oh, which I'm glad I did. I mean, I was thinking I could. I could make a difference in psychiatry. Um, but yeah, I was. I think. I, I think. It was too. I was too old to do it, and like didn't like. If I really wanted to do it, it wasn't fair to the family. I mean, I'm glad it didn't work out because it would have. It would have been really tough on the family. Yeah, that's interesting to think of. Yeah, I think. Oh, I don't know. That's just interesting. I think things would work out the way they need to. So. So anyways, we moved to San Francisco in 97 and where do you work? <laughs> oh my God. So, so, uh, so, so trying to get, I tried to get, so I knew community mental health. So I'm trying to get a community mental health job in San Francisco at the time the mental health workers were on strike. And it was like, you know, New Hampshire is really like a homogenous type of setting, whereas San Francisco is really diverse. And so I wasn't able to get a like a community mental health job in San Francisco. I did I did get offered a job at Walden House just down Haight Street, working with teenagers, but they did, it didn't pay enough. I needed to make enough. How much did it pay? They could make it. They could pay like twenty seven thousand. To live and in San Francisco. I, yeah. Seven. To live in San Francisco, I needed to make a little bit more. So I eventually got a job at United Behavioral Health. Which initially paid me about thirty-five thousand. I ended up working. I worked there for almost eighteen years, making making about sixty thousand. And I, you know, I'm, I worked a bunch of jobs. I did supervision. I, you know, I'm, I was a team leader and and a supervisor at that place. And but it was highly stressful and and micromanaged. But one of the things they did. Stressful? What made it stressful? It's okay. So it's a it was a um, call center job with mental health. So you'd have to you'd have to screen for uh, substance use and su and suicidality on every call. And this would be regarding like even if somebody was asking for legal services. So who who why do they know who calls this place? Oh, you need to call United Behavioral Health. Is because they have insurance linked to this, and that's who they're told to call. Or who, how do they know to call you or your? Yeah, our, our company was one of the biggest ones in the world, and it was. It, I would characterize it as a mental health hotline for Fortune 500 companies. That sounds interesting. For we had contracts with state and federal governments. We had we had uh, contract with the Department of Defense. We get calls from Iraq. Like from Iraqis or from like from soldiers in Iraq, US military, yeah, yeah, wow, 
That was a silly question. People were stressed out, drinking too much. You know, I heard all the stories, you know, doctors doing drugs, all kind, you know, afraid of losing their licenses, all that stuff. Well, that's, that's a hard, that's like one of the hardest places to be in. So no judgment to them, but, um, so, wow. Then you work at this place for 18 years, essentially in a call center answering crisis calls, which is how many calls did you take a day? Uh, up to 60, sometimes more. Oh my goodness gracious. And then if you didn't finish your call in a certain amount of time, or if you didn't ask a question, did you get dinged by a supervisor? Yeah. And they yes. recorded the calls and stuff and tried to ding you? Yes. So you have to try and provide health services to someone while also abiding by a certain questionnaire, maybe due to the legalities you are required maybe by law to ask these questions, right? Right. So the company's trying to avoid like liability. That's it. But not necessarily, that might not be good for the patient or for who you're trying to help, right? Right. It was, it's awkward trying to execute that because, you know, the people are going, why are you asking me these questions? You know, all I want to do is, you know, get a lawyer or a financial planner. Yeah. So it's, it, that's just not, that's ridiculous. Um, no. So you, how did you decide to leave this place? Like what, what triggered you to leave and what were some of your thoughts on leaving and, and what were like, what were you thinking of doing going forward? Okay. Well, I had a heart attack in 2000. So I worked there from 97 to 2015. Mm. And, uh, I had a heart attack in 2013 and I was, I was so, so messed up that I went back to work like within a week of having the heart attack. Mm. And I did my cardiac uh, rehabilitation. So I was taking some time off of work, but you know, I just, um, I was, I was kind of like a sick kind of relationship, you know, where I, you know, I knew it wasn't good for me, but you know, it paid the bills, all that stuff. Right. I was kind of dependent on the place. Um, what saved me, what saved me was I, there's a school that's just up the street. It was like one block away from UBH. And it was called Golden Gate University. And I had heard about, I had, you know, during those years, I had attended different stud, different uh, courses and lectures. And I attended this one lecture at UCSF. And this psychologist talked about this one counseling approach that uh, helped, helped clients grow their telomeres. And uh, I became fascinated by that approach. And uh, th at that point, I, you know, talked to mom and decided to get my, you know, counseling license. Although I had a master's degree already, it wasn't, um, it wasn't adequate. I'd gotten it out of state and um, it wasn't adequate for getting an M a counseling license in California. So I entered the, the MFT program at uh, Golden Gate University in 2014. Wow. Okay. So talk about how you, you start at Olaf and talk about the program and, and how it kind of changed your life. Okay. So Olaf is, a, 
Yeah, Olaf House is a six-month recovery program for men who are dealing with alcoholism and drug addiction. Mm -hmm. And it houses about 40 guys. It's a big mansion in Alamo Square. It's a three-story mansion. The second and third floors house the men. And then the ground floor is office, a big living room, big dining room. And then also we have count, smaller counseling rooms on the ground floor. And we, we do a, from on Mondays through Thursdays, we run groups from 7 p.m. to 8.30. And then on Fridays and Sundays, we have an AA meeting, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Um, I'm going to have up to between uh, 8 and 10 individual clients in my caseload. And I do individual counseling throughout the week. Uh, for one-on-one counseling, as well as PRN. So like in some people, I'll work with their families, I'll work with their spouses and their kids, that kind of thing. That's amazing. Um, Can you also, sorry, we jumped ahead just slightly. Can you talk about your experience at Golden Gate University and what was it like attending there? Okay. Um, so So I admit, so I applied and got in to Golden Gate in 2014, Reno and Ed uh, wrote recommendation letters for me, and I got a I got a ten thousand dollars scholarship. Who are they? To you, Reno was the director of the wilderness school that where we built the ropes course, and then Ed was his successor after Reno retired. And I worked, I continued to work with Ed um, as part of my internship to get my license. I needed five. I needed twenty five hundred hours to work with adults, which I was able to get through Olaf House, and then to get uh, family and kid experience, I got I needed to get 500 hours, and I was able to get that through, I'm able to get that through my internship at, uh, at Wilderness School. I'm about, um, I, I'm still about 120 hours at, uh, left to get kid hours. COVID, COVID really curtailed um, any type of uh, work in wilderness school for about a year and a half. So from 2014 to 2018, I was at Golden Gate. I attended all their classes and uh, completed my MA in in counseling psychology. And I have my degree right here. <laughs> right on the wall. Yeah. Nice and framed. Yeah. Wow. And then how long have you been working at Olaf House now? I just completed my seventh year in August, uh, mid-August. August, August uh, it was August 10th. Do you mind sharing their, their graduation rate? Yeah, we. so I have, like, since I've been there, long, you know, the longer I've been here, I'm, I'm able to have – I'm, able, I'm I'm experiencing more success with clients, you know, going the whole, not, not only do they go the whole six months, but I have some guys now that are realizing that they need to extend even longer. So I have one client who's been here for a year. Another client has been here for nine months. Another client's been here for eight months. So I'm getting clients who want to stay longer. And one of the good things about Olaf is you can get jobs, you can work while you're in that program. And so like one of the guys I'm working with who's been here for about nine months, he's just starting to work. He's just got a job and um, 
So by staying at Olaf, he gets the support he needs while he transitions. Like he's going to transition from Social Security disability income to actually getting income from a job. Wow. But what what is your what is the gradual wait grad excuse me the graduation I can't even speak graduation, graduation rate yeah what is uh, it I'd say it's less than fifty percent uh, we have a high we have a high turnover due to relapse yeah but I think it's better I I think their graduation rate is going to be better when you have a stable staff that are also involved in their own personal and professional development and that's what we're doing now we've got a pretty good we've got a pretty good uh, staff team right now good director and I think that accounts for the improved um, tenure of the clients you know we have clients staying more than six months and that the longer you're the longer you're in a stable environment the longer you're the more clean time you have the higher the um, probability that you're going to be successful you're going to maintain long-term sobriety. Wow. I think that graduation graduation rate really shows like how difficult it is to recover. You know, it's like people are really trying, but it's just, it's, a, it's an incredibly difficult task. Well, you know, so graduation rates, one thing, I mean, we're just trying to keep some of these guys alive. The death rate is increasingly high. Um, you know, we've had three guys die in the house while I've been there. And then, you know, since I've been there seven years, I can count at least 20 guys I know that have died. Oh my goodness. And, and, um, and then just nationally, if you, if you look at it, I mean, uh, Journal American Medical Association has looked at the, you know, death by drugs, alcohol and suicide. Um, it's, it's, um, over the last 20 years, and it's occurred at a, a rate to where the life expectancy of the average American has gone down. Wow. So yeah, the, the reality in this kind of work is that it's, there's, it's high, highly lethal. People, a lot of people die. What, um, what, what is the goal going forward for you now and what kind of motivates you to stay in this field? Okay. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know if this is appropriate, but I do have experience in recovery. I, you know, I've, I've attended both AA and Al-Anon. I had a drinking problem from about, for about 10 years from 1992 to 2003. And in 2003, I stopped drinking. Mm. And uh, and have been in AA and Al-Anon since 2006. Mm. And so I've learned. I've read the books. I've, I've attended meetings, and um, so I have a I have a great respect for recovery, personally and professionally. Mm. And um, so I see myself continuing at Olaf. Oh, you know, this particular job is. Um, there's two things to think about. I can, the, the professional growth, but it's, it's a four block walk from the house, Silas. It's really close. It's convenient. It's very convenient. You know, people in San Francisco have to commute long distances. From out of the city. They drive, they drive an hour from Pittsburgh or from wherever. 
Right. And the commute, like the commutes are murder. I mean, so, so I'm really lucky to have a plate, like just to, like, I don't need a car so I can just, I can walk to work and the, the schedule's flexible, all that stuff. In addition, um, what I see myself doing once I get a license is I can supervise other counselors and interns in the program. I can do trainings, things like that. That's going to be, I think that's the next step for you. I really am excited for you to, to take that on because I see you becoming a, a more concise speaker, uh, more to stay on topic. We're working on this, but yeah, uh, you help me with that. Thank you. Also to be, um, kind of giving back everything that you learned throughout your career to giving it to new counselors. Yeah. It's yeah. So, yeah, in addition to uh, in addition to Olaf, I, I continue to work at the ropes course with um, with Wilderness School, and we currently have a new batch of kids. So, like, I, I just completed uh, last semester, completed work three years with one batch, and they've all graduated. They have job like they have jobs, and now I'm working with a new batch. We, we've done ropes course training the last uh, couple of weeks of school. We ran the whole high school through the ropes course. And uh, we're preparing to go on it. We're going to have, um, we're going to have the police go through the ropes course in a couple of weeks. And then, in, and then we're going to go to our, do our Sierra trip uh, the last two weeks of September. So where you started is where you're kind of, where you found yourself again, you got, you fell in love with the outdoor recreation in the Sierras and now you're bringing the kids back to where you began as well on it. Isn't that interesting? It was very interesting. And then last June, I was able to bring a group of Olaf clients to the ropes course for the first time. I had been proposing that for years and the third director I've been, I've worked with, uh, finally agreed to doing it, and we we got a group of Olaf guys going through the ropes course, which was amazing. And then they get that experience of wow, I'm capable of doing, you know, being in a risky environment, climbing up. How how I mean, they climb up into the trees. How tall? Like, what's the drop? Um, one one event was over thirty feet. We've got some that are forty to fifty feet. So you're gonna feel it when you're up there, especially if you're not used to being up in heights on a rope on a small platform. Exactly, I still feel it after all these years. I, you know, it's 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 just a natural instinct. Yeah, that's really exciting. Um, what what do you think the the next podcast will be going more into depth about? You wanted to talk more about adventure based counseling, and that's right. Is that correct? Yeah, adventure-based counseling where you're you're actually involved in being challenged, uh, you know, a challenge of some sort with support, and how does that, um, how can that be helpful in terms of personal growth, recovery, you know, or you know, in terms of just changing your life for the better. Almost like challenges kind of help you build that resilience to overcome other obstacles in your life right that's it yeah yeah so basically you know it's all the same like you know there's happiness research happiness can kind of the happiness can also be translated into overall well-being and which it 
like I use those, I, I use that information for, you know, psychoeducation, psycho, psychological education in, in my work, you know, to talk about what well-being is and what, you know, what the strategies are for that. And resilience is certainly an important part of well-being. Yeah. Right. But it's all the same. It's all the same. So like if you're, say you're talking to a particular audience that wants to know about happiness, you call it happiness. But for like hardcore like soldiers, for example, you're going to talk about resilience. And then with um, addicts, you're going to talk about what's the difference between pleasure and happiness. You want to be able to give them information where they can make a decision, you know, they can be able to tell the difference between those two things.